Hello and welcome to Off the Page, the podcast from the International Literature Festival Dublin. For this week's episode, we're revisiting an event from the 2018 festival, featuring Rachel Kushner in conversation with Rob Doyle. Good afternoon and welcome. It's my great pleasure to introduce one of the most acclaimed and exciting novelists at work today. Rachel Kushner's debut novel, Telex from Cuba, was a finalist for the 2008 National Book Award and a New York Times bestseller. Her next novel, The Flamethrowers, was also a National Book Award finalist and an immense critical success. Her new novel, The Mars Room, is about to be published by Jonathan Cape. For my money, it is one of the finest novels to have appeared in recent memory. A gripping, impassioned, always surprising exploration of life inside the United States prison system. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a very warm welcome to Rachel Kushner. So we're going to talk uh, a bit about the Myers Room, and there will be questions at the, or there will be time at the end for any questions from the audience. But maybe to kick us off, Rachel, would you please give us a reading from yes. the Myers Room? Thanks for that intro. I just really, I feel like I have an electronic cigarette just <laughs> floating in front of my face right here. I never smoked one, so I don't even know, but it's like this funny thing there. Uh, I'm going to read from the book, and um, I think all you need to know is this scene that takes place in San Francisco. That's it. I mean, he's somebody on a plane, but he's going to San Francisco. He would not call it loaded, how he felt when he got on the plane. He was only starting to relax. He'd been on edge the whole time in Cancun. It was supposed to be a vacation, but minute by minute, Kurt kept checking in with himself to find out if he was having fun. And he didn't know, and this made him anxious. So he took another clonopin and lay down, or got up, or went to the bar, or walked around on the sand. But it burned his feet, and he had to face down the fact that he was not a beachy type person, and just wanted to go home and go to the Mars room and see Vanessa put her body in his lap. It was the only way in the world he knew to get peace. Every person deserves peace. He meant whether anyone deserves anything is beside the point. He needed certain things to feel okay. Vanessa was among those things. He needed dark and heavy curtains because he had a sleeping problem. He, he needed clonopin because he had a nerve problem. He needed Oxycontin because he had a pain problem. He needed liquor because he had a drinking problem. Money because he had a living problem. And show him someone who doesn't need money. He needed this girl because he had a girl problem. Problem was maybe the wrong word. He had a focus. Her name was Vanessa. That was her stage name, but for him it was her name name because it was the one he got to know her by. Vanessa filled in around all the hazier thoughts in his mind with something that was specific and real. When he was near her, he felt good. Every person deserves to feel good, especially him, since he was himself. 
There was a couple next to him turned inward to each other like they didn't really want to talk, but he tried anyway. Sometimes shooting the breeze with people kills time. He told them about his boat, and he didn't actually have a boat, but he'd been talking for so long like he did have a boat that he basically, at this point, owned a boat. But they weren't interested. So he turned to the kid across the aisle, started telling him about his boat. Sometimes he thought of people as kid, called grown men kid, but this kid was a kid kid, Kurt realized. How old are you? He asked. Thirteen? Nice. Kurt said it with a way to go, all right kind of tone. Kids like to be encouraged. He was rewarding this kid for being 13. 13 was puberty, old enough to get off. He'd like to show the kid a picture of Vanessa. There was a porn actress who looked a bit like her, but he didn't have a photo of the actress. A woman came up the aisle and leaned over the kid. Kid got up from his seat. A man came up the aisle and sat where the kid had been. They were a family and they were switching. Nice knowing you, Kurt said, and the kid said, you too. No one would talk to him, or rather listen, so he got his book out, Chicken Hawk, a Vietnam thing he'd been trying to read for three years. It interested him because he had begun long ago telling people he was in combat, but he never was. He was stationed in Germany. The book was about a helicopter pilot, and Kurt wasn't even halfway through. He read a few pages on the airplane as he sipped his rum and coke, but reading was difficult for him. The problem with reading was how relentless it was. You managed to concentrate long enough to read a whole paragraph, and then there was another one, and they just keep coming. He did it mainly as an act for the other people on the plane, except no one was watching him or noticing. He put Chicken Hawk away. He could not get his screen to work, so he closed his eyes and planned for when he'd be home and could go see Vanessa. The first time Kurt ever saw her, he had been keeping company with a hothead named Angelique. He and Angelique were dancing in the tunnel thing at the back of the Mars room. They called it dancing, but the whole time, you're just trying to rub up on them. There was another couple in the tunnel thing, a businessman and Vanessa. Her body was pressed against the businessman, she danced with the guy like she really meant it. She was glued to this man in a suit, in her bra and underwear. Angelique said loudly that Vanessa was breaking a rule, and was she high? What drug was she on? Because you can't fuck in the tunnel. It was fine to massage men's laps with your buttocks, but if you did that frontally, other girls would get on your case. Yeah, I'm high, Vanessa said, swaying into the businessman. It's a drug called happiness. You should try it sometime. She continued to grind against the businessman, the man himself taking no notice of the argument between the two women, and instead moving against pretty Vanessa like a man might dance with his wife on their golden anniversary, or in a TV commercial spotlighting an occasion like that to sell Viagra. Kurt thought it was funny. Later, Vanessa passed him on the aisle, and he told her so. She said, I don't like to talk, but if you want a lap dance, it's 20 a song. So he gave her an Andrew Jackson, as the girls called them, and that's how it started. The same way it started with any girl at the Mars room, except this chick was not just using him for the money. Something was happening between them. They all did a stage show, or were supposed to, and when it was Vanessa's turn, he sat closer to the stage than usual. When Angelique saw him alone and tried to offer company, he told her to get lost. 
Vanessa had a song that was clearly hers to perform to. She moved inside the song like it was about her. The singer had a weird voice. Kurt didn't know if it was a man or a woman, and that seemed pretty odd, but it fit with this chick, even if she herself was 100% girl. She, Vanessa wore mirrored sunglasses that gave a comic edge to her performance. She put her legs up, and they were the most gorgeous legs he'd ever seen. Some of the girls there had pale and flabby legs, shapeless tubes that reminded him of glass syringes. Vanessa's legs were leg legs, long and tapered. It was a joke, comedy, that this world-class chick was on stage at the Mars Room. He was in on it, you better believe it. She was high on life, the way everyone ought to try sometime, but hadn't or couldn't because they were not free the way she was. She was... This chick really knew, oh, sorry. I was gonna skip over this part, but I'll just read it. <laughs> this sexy chick with her amazing legs, cute ass, her tits were cute too, grabbable, handful sized, and then she showed the whole thing, bending upside down from behind. That was his favorite. She was doing it just for him. She knew, this chick really knew. That was the thing about Vanessa. She wasn't an idiot barking up the wrong tree. It was all the right tree. She understood how to turn him on, and she was doing it. She sat with him when her stage show was over. Know what I like about you? It was a setup for him to answer his own question. Everything. He liked to be the one to do the talking. He felt good with her. He felt comfortable. He loved to touch her. His hands were everywhere. He gave her 20 after 20, went out and got more money, and gave her that, got more, and gave her that too, because he really, really, really liked this girl. He started going more frequently to the Mars room. He was on workman's comp and had a lot of free time, and he was under a spell. He spent everything on this girl. All she had to do was turn and look at him, seated in his lap, and he'd hand over the bills. He was supposed to be at home recovering from his accident, but he got bored at home. He'd crashed outside the projects on Potrero Hill and mangled his leg, slid all the way across the intersection with his knee trapped underneath the very large and heavy gas tank of his K100 motorcycle. Had four operations and walked now with a limp. They called it an accident, but to Kurt, it was attempted murder. Kids in the projects had dumped motor oil in the middle of the street so he would wipe out. He had tried to serve legal documents, simply doing his job, to an address in the projects repeatedly without luck. On his sixth visit, he knew, as soon as he hit the intersection and went into a slide, what they'd done to him. But there was no way to find the actual kids and prove it. He was stuck at home, waiting for his knee to heal. He was told it might not. His apartment became a waiting room with no end to the waiting. He would shuffle around, sit on his couch, flip through a magazine, change the TV channel, stare into the fridge, watch cars move down the street, do his 10 exercises, watch cars try to parallel park. Hardly anyone knew how to parallel park. He'd sit on the bed, read the same sentence over and over in his book, Chicken Hawk, realize he was doing that, change TV channels, and finally get up, ride over to the Mars room, and limp in to see if Vanessa was working. He knew a lot of girls there now, but the only one he liked was Vanessa. He told her he was a homicide investigator. It wasn't a total lie. He wanted to investigate the kids who tried to kill him by putting a lake of motor oil in the intersection near the projects. 
He had learned not to tell people he was a process server because when he explained how you serve papers, the tactics you are forced to use, it didn't sound noble. People treated him like he was some kind of scumbag repo man. He talked to Vanessa about all the tensions in his life without giving details. He talked and talked. He touched her bare skin with his hands and said things, expressed feelings, and got attached. He got attached to her. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Rachel. Um, so that scene you've just read is an exception, but uh, a great deal of the novel is set inside a, a female prison, and you know the great subject of the novel is female mass incarceration, and potentially that could be a grim, bleak subject matter, and there's lots in the novel that is quite grim, but it's not a grim read, it's quite exhilarating, um, humorous and so on. But what was it that drew you to this subject of imprisonment, mass incarceration, and when did you know that you were writing a prison novel? Well, these are, those are great questions. Um, I, don't even, I don't even know if I know what the subject of my novel is. You know, when you, I mean, as a fellow novelist, perhaps you can relate, like, the, the texture of the kind of thoughts and ruminations that you have um, that allow you to write a book because you really need to push yourself, you know, and think deeply um, and arrive at new insights that you didn't have before. Like the process of the book is a kind of journey that one is on mm. and um, like textures and voices and sensibilities and tones are really where writing is at for me. Like the book is as much about this guy, Kurt, as it is about all these other things that happen in it and voices. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't know if I could have written it if I told myself, I am going to write a novel about mass incarceration. You know, it just sounds um, uh, daunting and also kind of static somehow, like to pick a subject for a novel because the, it's a work of art and it's, you know, mm -hmm. it's not um, like a study of an intractable social problem in America. Um, it's more like <laughs> I had the sense I wanted to write a contemporary novel. I mean, there's like, you know, such a kind of obsession with that. You know, I, I don't know, like writing about your own time somehow or having a take on it. And um, I had written these two previous novels, neither of which really take place in my own contemporary time. I mean, the 70s for me, which was the time period of my last novel, is for me contiguous with the now because I was a child then. Um, and it doesn't seem like that long ago. It's like a stretch of time that historically, I can see the logic of it and why we are where we are now because I lived through that time. But it's not contemporary. So I was thinking about contemporary times and I live in Los Angeles um, and have always been aware of California as a place um, with huge class differences and also a place that incarcerates a gigantic number of people. Like, you know, in the 70s in California, the state embarked on the largest prison building project ever undertaken in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not something that I thought about from a kind of political or social or activist angle. It just is a reality and I had been aware of it since I was a child and kind of uncomfortable 
with the idea that society is structured the way it is. And I'm not saying I have a better solution, but mm. I wanted to ask sort of rudimentary questions about like, wh why do people have to go to prison for life? And you know, in the United States, it's quite common, less common in Europe, as I understand it. And like the unit of, a to use your life to pay back some act of harm that you've committed, it's almost always gonna involve bodily harm if somebody gets a life sentence. But to pay back with your life is so arbitrary because it doesn't matter if you live four years or 40 years, mm. you know, or even 80 years. I mean, there are people who, are, who get life sentences when they're still minors, when they're 15, 16 years old. So like, what does that mean? And as a philosophical or like a theological concept, it becomes quite confusing, you know, when you think about somebody who gets, for instance, multiple life sentences. I know somebody who has five life sentences. So it's almost to me like walking into a church and or a cathedral and seeing the heights of the ceiling. Like it's this idea that you have to live multiple times in order to finally achieve the stretch um, of material life in order to reach redemption. Like what is it? Mm. So I thought into a lot of that and um, I was working as a volunteer at a human rights organization called Justice Now who do regular visits to the women's prisons in California and um, they document and try to prevent human rights abuses and through them I became really good friends with several people who are all uh, lifers in this prison that's kind of the model for the one mm -hmm. in my book but I also had grown up with somebody uh, who I was quite close to who went to prison and died in prison and his you know his whole destiny was determined by what happened to him um, after he was arrested and charged for a crime and it's I guess it sort of affected me and so that was an you know there are multiple reasons why I'm interested in what happens to people once they get sucked into the criminal justice system yeah okay and um, <clears throat> what you said there towards the end kind of partly answers my next question, as does something you said to me when we were chatting backstage. I was going to say that the novel seems to me to be incredibly well researched. I mean, on virtually every page, we're getting these rich, quite fascinating details about life inside uh, the, the, the penitentiary system and <coughs> the lives of inmates and the legal system and all of that stuff. Um, but then when we were chatting backstage, you kind of said you never do anything that you consider research as it's commonly understood you just live your life yeah which kind of sank my question before i'd even asked it but uh, but then you sit now you tell us that you've volunteered um and did all that kind of activist stuff which i hadn't been aware about and was that more or less the extent of the research that went into this book just these kind of engagements with presumably women who were behind bars well it no i mean it's like I, I, it, in a certain sense, it's only a semantical difference, whether it's research or not research. It's mm. just, like I, as I said to you backstage, I, I live in a certain way, and then I write out of whatever I acquire through the course of living, if it's hopefully some kind of wisdom or knowledge or whatever else, trauma, stupidities, you know. Mm. Um, in this case, I basically decided about six years ago in 2012 that I wanted to learn everything I could about 
the criminal justice system. And it was more as a citizen than as a writer. Mm. Like, I lived near the criminal courts in LA and I just started going down there and watching arraignments because it's a public space. And it has this kind of theatrical dimension to it where the citizens are, are there's, there's space for you. Um, that you know to go and watch a trial, and you don't have to tell them that you're coming, and anyone can go, and um, you can learn a lot that way. Just seeing who is being processed through the courts on a day-to-day -day level, and like, guess what? It's all poor people. Um, and then in California, once somebody goes through the whole long process of the trial, I mean, Los Angeles has a gigantic court system and a huge jail system. From what I understand, it's the largest jail system in the world, um, these two complexes downtown. And between the courts and the jail, there are sheriff's buses that shuttle back and forth all day long. And um, once people are sentenced, when they've gone through that process, they are sent to a state prison and they're put on a different kind of bus and taken many uh, hundreds of miles away from their homes. Most people who go to prison come from the metropolitan like area of Los Angeles or the other surrounding counties, but all very urban places. And they're sent way into the industrial farmland of California where we grow like half the food in the United States. Uh, so I wanted to learn about that. I was just curious about it. Um, so it was like, a process that I was entering and going through and I knew that it, I would be changed by it kind of permanently and that was really separate from writing a, a book. And one of the reasons I don't call it research is because I'm, I'm still living the effects of it now and am very involved with people in prison even more than I was when I was writing the book. So in that way, it would feel odd to me to call them research. Mm -hmm. But I did other things as well. like I. Um, I asked this criminology professor if I could go on his tour. He takes s undergraduate students from his university to um, 14 prisons in California, 13 men's institutions and the one big women's institution. And every year he told me that I couldn't go because if a writer went on his tour, it would destroy his relationship with the wardens at each one of these prisons. And his students go, um, basically, it's like a job fair for them. A lot of them are gonna end up working for the California Department of Corrections right. as guards, and a lot of their parents are prison guards. And um, one year he called me and he said, um, I am retiring this year and you can come on my tour as a continuing education student. Mm -hmm. So I went Because he had nothing to lose. He had nothing first. to lose, yeah. yeah, and just said, don't tell anybody you're a writer, just come on the tour. Yeah. And every day he would sneak in um, a yellow legal pad for me as his and then hand it to me the minute we got inside so that I could start taking notes. And that was, you know, um, a really unbelievable experience in a lot of ways, just because of the level of violence that we were exposed to. I wasn't really prepared for it, but I also just made myself uh, endure it. Like, the you mean witnessing violence among inmates? Well, or? no, I should say, like for example, they, the guards at each uh, facility, um, they have a special investigative services unit in each facility. It's called the ISU. It's kind of like the FBI. Do you guys know what the FBI is? Sure. Like, right, like um, uh, the FBI of the prison who investigates like, you know, drug dealing and, it's, and this and that. And um, 
in each ISU unit, they wanted us to watch their special homemade, edited together uh, compilation of murders that were filmed on closed circuit television in their yards. And um, we had to watch these over and over and over again. And I never thought of myself as somebody who can tolerate any violence at all. It's really tough. But being exposed to that, I just made myself do it because mm -hmm. I thought, I will learn something from this, even if it's damaging and unpleasant. Um, and I think that I did in a lot of ways, but yeah, but it was, I mean, I, I'm sorry, it's so graphic, but <coughs> when one person is stabbing another person with a homemade instrument, it is so brutal to watch because like, it takes a long time for them to complete the job and like, like people have to stop and rest. I mean, it was so, <laughs> so anyway, um, I don't mean to laugh, it's just, <laughs> I don't know if I should have mentioned that detail or not, but <laughs> it was an immersion in a world that is part somehow of the story of the state of California, which I'm from. And so I was trying to put together all these different pieces just to, um, to get through that and retain something um, durable, you yeah. know, as yeah. a person separate from novel research. Okay, interesting because you mentioned uh, this kind of trip, this research trip where you were kind of the espionage where you were kind of smuggled in and you could yeah. watch them and all these future guards were being kind of trained in and shown the ropes and so on. And one of the, you know, lovely things about the, no the novel is that it's so full of sympathy and empathy uh, for people who have been totally written off by society as vile, as they've transgressed the ultimate moral laws and so on. But kind of, the, I noticed that the only people in the novel who didn't really get much in the way of sympathy at all were the guards and the prison workers and the, the screws and the, the prison staff. A lot of them are completely uh, horrible. And, you know, I was wondering what was that? Was that a conscious decision of yours when you were writing? There's only so much empathy to go around here and these guys are excluded it's from that. Actually, I didn't know what you were going to say, and I thought maybe you were going to say that you have empathy for them too, and <laughs> I was going to go, yeah, you know, and I'm glad that came through. Um, yeah. because, that was just my reading of it. But yeah. I mean, in reality, like, I mean, I think that, well, there's the character Gordon Hauser. Sure, I almost yeah, read his section today, and he uh, is somebody who ends up getting a job teaching in the prison, and... Um, so he, you know, constitutes staff, and uh, right, I have yeah. a lot of no, I didn't mean him, but empathy yeah. for him. But he mm. himself is really alienated from the sort of quasi-military culture of guards. Like guards think of themselves as police officers, but in the United in the United States, they're at the rock bottom of the hierarchy in law enforcement. You only have to have a high school equivalency exam to be hired as a guard, and they tend to be. Um, really poor people who get those jobs and they can make almost um, a middle-class salary working in a prison, but the trade-off for them is absolutely enormous. And I saw uh, the kinds of stress that guards endure and also what the mentality that's required in the institution does to them, right. you know? And so I don't really blame individuals. I don't believe even in something like evil. Yeah. It's um, you know, it's, the, it's an institutional framework and an institutional mentality, and these things are, 
explainable by sociology. Like they have a kind of, they have a warlike mentality. It's us against them for the guards. And if anybody is seen as sort of soft on prisoners, you know, then that person is humiliated and made into a kind of pariah by mm -hmm. the rest of the guards. So, you know, that's how I see it. Like these, these are also working class people mm. who have made a decision to try um, to um, better themselves, but the trade-offs for them, I mean, they, they have like a really high suicide rate. Really? I mean, yeah, yeah. the oh, stress yeah. is like... Oh yeah, the ones who blow their heads off right. in, the, in the guard towers or something. Yeah. yeah, and so like Gordon understands that, I think, to a degree, and is meant to relay some of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of the book is told from the perspective of Romy, the narrator, mm. who is serving two life sentences and is gonna have a more contentious relationship to her captors. And then there's Doc, who is a former Los Angeles Police Department officer who uh, ends up with a life sentence, life without possibility of parole. And yeah. I find him to be a sympathetic character, yeah, but it turns out character. other people. He's, he's hideous, he's totally vile, but I loved his, I thought his, oh, uh, his character was fabulous. Um, but yeah, so people are turned off and they don't like him as much as you do, is that the? Well, I had a woman in LA ask me, she said, um, you know, was it really difficult to have to write that character? Right. And um, I just tried to answer her question earnestly and then a friend of mine mentioned it afterward and said it was so funny to hear her ask you if it was difficult. Like, it's not like something I had to do, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I was, um, it, like a fireman trying to pass the exam and running through the tires, like I chose the character, I made him up, yeah, yeah. I created him from <laughs> yeah. beginning to end and had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, it, is, it feels like fun, like there's a lot of love in those chapters about Doc Strange. I mean, this is a guy who blows somebody away for no good reason whatsoever, and that's just one of his many yeah. heinous sins, but uh, they're, they're weirdly luminous chapters about him and, and affectionate and um, fun. But something else I wanted to ask you, um, one of the characters, Gordon Hauser, this prison teacher, is uh, a, a, an avid reader of Dostoevsky, which, you know, his appearance in the novel doesn't feel like an accident. And um, similarly to Dostoevsky and the kind of the Russian masters, you're really wrestling with some pretty big fish here when it comes to philosophical um, and moral questions, and you even used the word theological um, a few minutes ago. You know, it, it's getting pretty... It could have been called Crime and Punishment if that title hadn't already been taken. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's going after that kind of level of moral and philosophical engagement with these big questions, and do you feel that this novel is a kind of evolution for you personally in terms of your own work to date in its moral reach? Wow, that's an amazing question, and, and per se, in a way. While I was writing this book, I would have answered you, yes, absolutely. Like, I felt like I was undergoing some kind of transformation. I mean, I don't like to claim that now that the book is out, you know, that it has the sort of moral gravitas of somebody like Dostoevsky. Yeah. I just, you know, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't make those kind of claims, um, and, I, I wouldn't even want to be, I don't know, you know, the kind of writer who would, who would do that because humility is so essential 
to grappling with the very types of issues that I think Dostoevsky grapples with so well. Like there's a way in which you don't know what constitutes innocence and like where human goodness lies as a sort of um, base level, right? Mm. And um, his, his, his way of sending people out into like a kind of darkness, sorry I'm being woefully inarticulate <laughs> here, but like I love the Brothers Karamazov because mm. so much happens among people that has endless shades of um, moral ambiguity, but then there's this idea that he has a superstructure um, that allows him to go into total darkness and the superstructure is uh, Christianity or Dostoevsky's version of such um, is clear there, in, I think, in that book. Um, and there's this scene near the end when the character Alyosha gives this talk. It's called the Talk by the Stone. People, has anybody read the Brothers Karamazov? So it's like a very beautiful scene that's really about like this kernel of innocence that he believes each person has. And he tells these children um, who are having this kind of moment together of reverie, like remember this moment for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And the implication is like, no matter what else happens to you and no matter what else you do, you will always have this one kind of polished kernel of undefilable innocence in you or something like that. And um, like reading that and having exposed myself to all kinds of violence and like thinking about why there are people mm -hmm. in my society who are offered no mercy whatsoever, um, yeah, was uh, an experience definitely that I was having. And I, I used to kind of make fun of the idea of moral fiction, which now seems really immature to me. Um, like I used to just think moral fiction, like <laughs> what is that? I mean, and part of that is because I'm kind of a student of this, I guess like what I would call like a nihilist strain of modernism, like Genet, et cetera. Mm. But when I was writing this novel, I finally understood like what moral fiction is because I had to grapple with these really serious issues and figure out what my own position was on them or at least have sufficient rumination to feel like if I got to the end and still suspected that the truth was foreclosed from me, at least I'd done everything I could you know, to have an understanding, if that yeah, makes yeah, sense. Yeah, that, that's, that's fascinating to hear. Um, but this question, you talk about Dostoevsky, he had this superstructure that allowed him to plumb the absolute depths of darkness and extreme evil and so on. And you go into some pretty dark places too. Um, do, 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 we're getting kind of unexpectedly philosophical and intense now, but do you have some kind of corresponding superstructure that allows you to moral or philosophical or otherwise that allows you to plunge into those depths too? God, that's such a great question. I mean, it's abstract in a way what I would answer. Um, I think that I do, but I, I, I didn't grow up with any religion, so yeah. I don't have that kind of structure. Um, I, and I think you have to grow up with religion to believe in God. Like, he has to have been a member <coughs> of your family ever since you can remember. That's my theory about religion, and it's why it's so hard for people to leave religion. And like when they do, it's like excommunicating a member of your family, right? You have to actively repress mm. the thing that was formerly there. And I, I, I wasn't raised with that. Um, 
but I, I know that there's some structure there for me in terms of having um, a moral center because I'm still the same person as I was before mm. I went into this experience. But when you asked your question, I was thinking of something anecdotal that I'd like to share if it's okay. Um, when I was first really involved with people in prison, like, you know, uh, but without any prior set of defenses, I um, was trying to, I'm still trying to help her, I was helping a woman who was convicted at the age of 15 and given two life sentences. That's basically, she's a completely different, different scenario, different set of predicaments, but that's the sentence that I gave the narrator of my book. And her brother is in prison with five life sentences, completely mm. separate crimes. And I was talking to her all the time and thinking about her life. Like she's supposed to do them consecutively, her life sentences. And um, that was all new to me and very confusing and overwhelming. And this person has no one, no family, no support, nothing. And I, I was in uh, Barcelona to do um, a literature festival much like this one. And I went to the Sagrada Familia by Gaudi. Oh, yeah. Have you been to that yeah, church? Sure. Yeah. And you know, it's like a you know, pretty gaudy place, right? But I walked in there with all of this stuff about people and their life sentences heavy on my mind. And the reason I said like a church building with the height of the sentences that you are supposed to live in order to pay back the state for your crime is that I walked into Gaudi's cathedral and was totally overwhelmed by this space, like the surrealism of it worked on me. And I started to cry and I was thinking about people who have to pay back with their lives and I was devastated by it. And I had like what I thought was a religious experience and I was like, cause I felt the absence of God so keenly in my life while I was starting to commence this work that I'm still doing now um, because it's really stark without that, you know, because people seem pretty lousy mm. and the situation is so despairing. Mm. But so I had this experience in the church and I was crying and there was this wind blowing through the organ and I was like, maybe this is my like moment to turn to this respite that's been waiting for me all along. Mm. And uh, there was a guy working there. They have these like um, docent type, you know, people working in the, in the cathedral um, just to help tourists or guide people through. And the guy saw me crying and I said, let me ask you a question. <laughs> I said, are you religious? And I felt his hesitation. He was like a young, cute Spanish guy. And he goes, by tradition, <laughs> at which I would imagine Irish people, could, some can probably identify. He goes, by tradition. And I said, do you ever feel like, does, does working in this, uh, in this environment make you feel closer to God? And he goes, look. And it was basically like, look lady. He goes, what I feel is that I need to get people moving from that side of the cathedral to this side of the cathedral and make sure that if there's an emergency, people are flowing towards the exit and that's my job. And I said, but I mean, do you, with this church, do you, is it? And he goes, look, he goes, if there is a God, I seriously doubt he would step foot in this place. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. So you're not quite So that again, structure yeah, didn't right. really last for me. <laughs> Fair enough. But, you know, it almost. <laughs> yeah, nearly, nearly got there. Uh, 
there's, there's time yet, you know. Um, so, oh yeah, I have a, a friend who's obsessed with the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. Oh, really? She, yeah, she couldn't make it uh, today, but she was determined to make me ask a question. But there is this strange and fascinating strand that also kind of opens up philosophical depths in the book about the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, and about Thoreau, um, the, the guy who wrote Walden. You kind of played them off against each other as, I don't know, twin strands in the American psyche or something like that. Uh, and you, uh, you include periodically what seem to be extracts from Kaczynski's journals into the novel um, with his militant hatred of the incursions of technology and oppressive systems into the American wilderness and so on. But you kind of leave it hanging there. You don't, you're not kind of hitting us over the head with any, you know, reason why this is here or anything like that. It's just included in the novel. So what was, what were you getting at with that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, gosh, it's, it's, it's hard to explain that in a really reduced way. Um, yeah, yeah. I've just asked you to do what I said you didn't do in the novel, which is hit us over the head with the... No, no, it's okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, so the character Gordon is a sort of failed academic who wanted to write a dissertation on Thoreau. And, you know, for Americans, Thoreau is a really kind of foundational idea, not just his ideas, but the idea of him and what he did by building this cabin, Walden, and then living in it for two years. Um, and so American transcendentalist thinking is something I sort of imagine that Gordon would be really captivated by because it's so contradictory at its core. It's actually, speaking of religion, it's a really Adamic, is that how you say it? Adamic concept, like this idea of a new Adam, like coming to the United States, you know, and building a new world. Obviously, there was a world that pre-existed his arrival, so it can never quite be this, you know, pure Edenic sphere and also be an expansionist enterprise such as it was. Um, but in any case, so, yeah, so Thoreau built this cabin, and, you know, Ted Kaczynski also built a cabin um, in Montana. And um, I have a friend, this artist named James Benning, who um, made an art project where he built exact replicas of both of their cabins. So I should attribute the comparison entirely to him, and he got me thinking about both of them, and the cabins are on his property, which is a place I would stop on my way to visit people in prison, and still do go there. Um, and I've slept in both cabins, and they're different experiences. One has a lot of light that pours into it, and that's Thoreau's cabin, and Ted's cabin, as we call it, is rather dark. Um, and uh, there, you know, there are ways in which there are similarities between the two in terms of an idea of self-reliance and an interest in nature and in solitude. And there's some degree maybe of commonality in misanthropy and frustration with culture and certainly technology, but then they start to peel away from one another. And the ways in which they peel away for me was somewhat evident in the journals of Ted Kaczynski the real journals, which have never been published, but I had full access to. So they are extracts. Yeah, they're extracts yeah, right. from his journals. This artist, who I just mentioned, James Benning, was given those journals by another artist 
who uh, has made quite a lot of money in the art world and went to the FBI auction of all of Ted's stuff, the proceeds of which, I should emphasize, have gone to the victims um, and the families of the people that he hurt and or killed. Um, the journals are handwritten in numerical code, mostly. So it's just pages of numbers. It'll be like six comma three one three comma eight seven comma, and um, he, he wrote the, the whole thing in a code. He wrote right? the entire thing. Yeah, I mean, there, occasionally some, some of it is in English, mm. um, but then he'll switch into Spanish, which makes him seem utterly ridiculous. Like <laughs> that's gonna, um, you know, encode your text yeah, so yeah. that people don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, this is kind of bizarre. Um, mm. But he made a codex for it. Is that what it's called? A, yeah, uh, yeah. A, um, like a and that a key. Thank yeah. you. Um, which he didn't need because he had it memorized. And my friend James's theory on the key is that he was so proud of the intricacy of his own code that he buried the key in the wall of his cabin, expecting that someday somebody would find it and say, you know, gosh, what an intelligent what a guy. Yeah, what a genius Ted Kaczynski was. So James Benning decoded the diaries. He built a computer program to do it. And um, let me read all of the, uh, all of the um, decoded diaries. And I started transcribing them. And I was interested in the way that his tone was so different than my own. Like, I couldn't have emulated that for the life of me. There's something about the cadence and his frank use of language. I mean, he's a really messed up guy, but he's kind of a good writer. Mm. And the diaries at first, I mean, they're just very small passages in the book. There's like five, and they're less than a page each, I think. Um, but at first, they're th these kind of lonely reflections on um, survival. Like, he's eating porcupines, he's going for walks, he's setting traps, he's checking his traps. And then fairly quickly, they start to turn toward anger when, as he sees it, his autonomy is infringed upon by other people, like the snowmobilers who are making noise and chopping down trees to make snowmobiling tracks. And so what does he do? He breaks into their cabin, trashes all their stuff, sets their snowmobiles on fire, and empties out their bottles of vodka. My husband read that part, and he's like, you know he means business when he <laughs> emptied out those vodka bottles. <laughs> like, never mind that he like sets their whole cabin on fire. Um, but so there's this turn toward anger that I found interesting as a, um, I guess as this like sort of slow transformation over the course of the diaries. Mm. So I intersperse them, and the inference is that Gordon is reading the diaries, because mm -hmm. they always come after his chapters. Mm. And maybe one thing I wanted to think about is um, why it is that some people think that the complication and mess of other people and the social fabric can be solved by living apart, you know, yeah. or, and can it, can it be solved yeah. that way? That was, that was one yeah. thing. And also just how alienated Gordon is because he works in this prison but can't really understand the moral import or purpose of his own life. Mm. And so he's reading the diaries of somebody who's really, thinks he has a purpose, but is adrift. Okay, yeah, uh, interesting. Um, to stay on a kind of philosophical theme, um, one of the characters, Conan, uh, says, I think quite early in the book, it's one of the lines of dialogue, and it's something like, a lot of 
people talk a lot of shit about prison, but the fact is you've got to live your destiny every day. And it kind of seems like a, a, like a slogan for the whole book. Is it fair to say that it's a book? Maybe what makes it so even uplifting, if that's not too sappy a word, but it, it's curiously uplifting or exhilarating read, despite its quite brutal and dark subject matter. Is, is that because, do you think, it's a book ultimately about embracing destiny, about the love of fate, no matter how terrible and bleak. It's something that seemed to me to be a kind of pulse behind a lot of what gets depicted in the novel. Yeah, that's incredibly insightful. That's exactly what it is. Um, and I'm assuming that you explicitly are thinking of Nietzsche when you exactly, say love the and fate. Exactly, the thing, yeah. yeah and yeah. Nietzsche gets mentioned in it a couple of times too, yeah. But he, yeah, I mean, Nietzsche was, I never knew that Nietzsche would be so comforting to me. I don't, haven't really ever thought of him previously no. as a comforting philosopher, but I found him to be like, like a psychological life buoy for me when I was writing this book and precisely because of this idea of claiming destiny and loving fate. And um, it's a sticky concept but um, it has depth and an interior to it. And I think that there's enough there and yet enough ambiguity that it allowed me to think into the um, incredible predicament of somebody whose life has been determined for them by something like a life sentence. Mm. Like how to think about your life as taking on, taking on some larger form of meaning, for instance. Yeah, and well, exactly as you say, like um, loving destiny for precisely what it is, even when you are not um, able to change it. And Nietzsche says beautiful things about that. I really like what he says in his, it was like the last book he wrote before he cracked up, mm, Ecce Homo. Yeah. Do you know that yeah. text? Yeah, and there's this chapter called um, Why I Am a Destiny. Oh, yeah. And that really meant a lot to me when I was writing this book. So I almost titled the book, I Am a Destiny, well, but yeah. not everybody liked it. It yeah. kind of has like one syllable too many. Yeah, yeah, it would be a hell of a title. Device, if I can see that already, why it would be, you know. Um, yeah, a good one though. Um, um, yeah, so I just wonder what time it is. Is it time to bring, I should have had my, it's ten to five. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Sure thing. Um, so, uh, people have compared your work, um, your your prose style, your 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 kind of scope, and so on, to other American authors like Don DeLillo, in particular, gets mentioned a few times. Um, and in the novel itself, you kind of drop in a few, you know, they, they, they don't necessarily have to mean anything other than the fact that they're in there, but you drop in a few other authors, like I say, Dostoevsky, but then people like uh, Dennis Johnson also, I think just some of the prisoners are reading them or something like that. Um, so who, who are the authors who you turn to for, for like you say with Nietzsche, comfort, solace, uh, inspiration, that kind of thing? Um, I saw some kind of, let's say, spiritual affinity between the writing that was going on here and like the best of Dennis Johnson. That same, oh, I'd, like the nice. abject characters or abject situations, lives are completely screwed up, but finding this kind of 
intense joyfulness or something, not joyfulness, but some kind of something to celebrate within it, even in the doc uh, chapters that we talked about. Um, so who, who, who would be the, the, the big ones for you in terms of where you look to for sure. inspiration? Yeah, I mean, so many different ones, but um, mm. yeah, I, I love Dennis Johnson. And uh, there's a kind of like glittering energy in his work at its very best, like his first novel, Angels, oh, yeah. which um, basically ends on death row, but mm. you know has a, has a real poetic density to it. And mm. he is also a poet, and it was so obvious to me reading that book when it came out that it was written by a poet. Mm. Um, and each paragraph is really perfect. And it also has this louche quality that uh, I think appeals to me, you know, I mean, I have a loose sensibility yeah, or yeah. that's what my husband tells me, but uh, um, yeah, and there's life for him. He never just goes into straight misery, yeah. which to me feels, I'm not thinking of any other writer, but just in myself, it would feel lazy to just describe uh, immiseration. Like yeah. I'm totally uninterested in doing that. Yeah. I, I wanna describe vitality. Because people do have uh, incredible resources, like the way <clears throat> that they can perform their personalities on other people is um, something that I have a great reverence form for. Like I think at, that it's one of the great art forms is how people kind of, you know, swagger yeah, right, is like okay. a great art form. And I think that Dennis Johnson is really good at evoking it in his own work. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's, he's just somebody who's interesting to me. Yeah. There's a guy, Leonard Gardner, who wrote this book, Fat City, that Dennis Johnson oh, yeah. really loves. It was like, his, it was his favorite novel. Well, it was and recently I, republished, wasn't it, by the NY or Yeah, like about 10 years ago or oh, something, okay. or maybe yeah, more right. recently, yeah, but right. that's a really, really great novel. But yeah. Um, yeah. I would say, a, an, an author I absolutely love and never tire of reading and rereading is Marguerite Duras. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I would never I claim to bear the mark of her influence, mm. but um, she was in it for all time. She was such a serious writer, I think, and um, she could make these pronouncements about life that are just so true. I mean, she has almost like a kind of biblical... Um, tone of authority to me. She has this, there's a line in one of her books, uh, it's this book, Practicalities, mm -hmm. um, uh, Love You Material. It's my favorite book of hers, but she says, a life is no small matter. Right. Like she, Duras right. can just say these things. Yeah. And, um, and also the way she lived her life, you know, she was like, present for most of the 20th century and like, you know, her husband oh, went to, yeah. Um, the concentration camps and she worked for the Vichy and then she was like, um, you know, worked for the resistance and just, she did so many, and then she made all these incredible films. Like she was a tireless artist and also very engage. Mm. Like she wasn't afraid to speak her mind and singular. Yeah. And so, yeah, I have a ton of reverence for yeah, her. Yeah, interesting. I never would have made the connection, yeah. Um, what about, uh, the, the? was there a point where you realized you were kind of writing into a tradition of prison literature? I think the only one you mention in the book is someone like Daniel Steele or something like that, somebody who wrote presumably a big, you know, trashy mass market pulp fiction thing about prison. But other than that, it's hard to think of the great prison novels without thinking of the 
the Russians, 19th century people, but were there, were there kind of models there for you, forebears and stuff that you look to um, as you're trying to you know, struggle into the darkness of creating a novel? Right. Well, to some degree, yeah, I, I mentioned this Daniel Steele book, Malice, in my novel because um, it is hands down the most popular novel in the women's prison is in it? California, yeah. which is, there are 4,000 women there. It's the largest women's prison right. in the world. And all my friends and are like, oh my God, Malice is amazing. <laughs> and everybody reads it when they have to go to solitary confinement. It's called the secure housing unit or right. administrative segregation because there's nothing to do right. but read books. And so there's this, Malice is like torn into sections and people um, have a very complicated system <laughs> of slipping it under doors using like a line, they call it, that you make from stripped bedsheets anyway. Oh, yeah. But at first it just seemed really funny and shocking to me that people would want to read a novel about prison <laughs> in prison. In prison yeah. But then that seemed incredibly naive to me. You know, like people want to do what is comfortable to them. And it maybe goes along with, like, I used to be shocked that at American truck stops, you see truckers playing video games that are involve driving. <laughs> like, you know... <laughs> people want to stay in their comfort zone yeah. to some degree. But, um, I mean, you know, as I said before, I don't think of my book as a prison novel. Sure. But I was interested in that form as a literary form because there was a time, I think, in the United States, I mean, the Russians, of course, but then in America, there was a time when it was sort of um, eventually the serious American male novelists would you know, turn toward prison and do something with it and write something about it. Mm. And strangely, that time has passed, but, you know, like, Norman Mailer, oh, yeah. you know, was, like, all, you know, has written several novels that could be considered prison novels. Yeah. Um, John Cheever's Falconer, it, which is his best novel by far, um, takes place in a prison, and he, um, he taught at Sing Sing, which is a kind of notorious... Mm prison on the East Coast, and um, he said one of the great things, I think, about uh, prison novel writing when he was on his book tour after Falconer came out, and somebody said, did you teach at Sing Sing to do research for your prison novel? And he said, I no more taught at Sing Sing to research my prison novel than I got married to research women. Which is kind of a great way to answer that question. Yeah. But so that novel, and then, yeah, and then as I mentioned, Dennis Johnson's Angels yeah, is yeah. kind of a... Yeah, ends on that Royce. Yeah, is I, I think of as a kind of, yeah, within that yeah. genre. Yeah. And also um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, in a way, even though it takes place in a mental institution. These oh, yeah. institutions yeah, yeah. are all, right. you know... Enclosed people, basically. Yeah, because yeah. McMurphy has basically been arrested, and he's serving that time in the mental institution to forego serving that time in jail, and he cannot leave, and then only leaves tragically, you know, once he's dead. Right, yeah, yeah. Okay, w with that, we'll open it up to the audience. So, anyone got any questions? Uh, oh yeah, this mic's coming out. Uh, if not, I've got plenty more, so don't worry. Any hands up, any questions, no? Oh, uh, there's one there, this lady. I think the mic is just on its way. Uh, just in the middle. I, I would just say, wow, I'm totally impressed at your extent of knowledge and experience and background and your non-research, which is pretty damn good research. Um, I have a stupid question. 
Um, why is the novel called The Mars Room? Oh, yeah, we didn't even get onto that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I was just thinking I, I should provide a stupid answer so that we have symmetry. But no, it's not a stupid question at all. Um, well, yeah, as I mentioned, I was going to call it a, I Am a Destiny. And I, I have trouble with novel titles. They're, I think they're so hard. And part of the reason they're hard is that you can come up with a title before you write the book. But then the book itself, you know, it takes five years, at least for me, to write a novel. And by the time I've written the book, it's not necessarily going to fit anymore with the, the, t the mm. name that preceded it. But then naming it after it's come into existence, it's like naming your own child once they're 10 years old or something. Like, what name, you know, will come to symbolize this already existent person or thing? Uh, the title of the Mars Room was, well, it's titled, the, uh, there, there is a place in the book called the Mars Room, which, you know, Kurt mentioned, um, and where he becomes fixated on the narrator, Romy. And um, that title was actually suggested to me by um, another writer who Rob mentioned, Don DeLillo. He read the book, and I was really struggling with the title and bugging my friends to help me. And so he called me and said, um, I think you should call it The Mars Room. And when he said it, I said, oh, yeah, well, you know, I already thought of that, and it doesn't work because that's only one aspect of the book. It's just this CD club in San Francisco, and it can't possibly do the work to encompass this broader book. Um, I mean, I didn't quite say that to him, but that was my thought. But then the more, I th the more I considered it, having come from the outside by somebody else suggesting it, it took on a bigger meaning for me. And I started thinking about those two words, like Mars being very distant and mysterious, and room being very closed and small and familiar. So there's, for me, like a tension between the words, Mars and room. Um, and Mars is obviously also the god of war. And so I looked it up, and there's only one Mars room in existence, and it's in Versailles, and it's dedicated to Mars, the god of war, and has incredibly violent frescoes <laughs> painted on the walls and ceiling. So that seemed appropriate. And then um, I came across this um, Stefan Georg poem that um, Schoenberg adapted, and it has this line in it that goes, I feel the air of another planet. Um, and then the, it's my uh, epigraph, and then the next is, friendly faces turned toward me, once turned toward me, now are fading into darkness. And it's this like account of alienation, and I love that idea of the air of another planet. So that's why it's called the Mars Room. Okay, any more questions? And it's just over there, middle row. Hi, Rachel. Thanks Hello. very much. I'm looking forward to reading the book. Um, I'm just curious if you, what, you, what you have to say about what you're, you were talking about your experience, uh, where you drew your ideas from in terms of your life experience and the, your experiences in um, volunteering with the, with the group working in the prison. And I'm wondering if there are any, in the process of writing the book, were there any moments where you felt that, um, that, that either you needed to go out and find more information about a specific thing, like your story was going in a certain direction, you felt I need to do more research on this side, or what you had already experienced was maybe oppressing some aspect of your storytelling drive. But was there ever a sort of like where the two things were not really 
in sync or, or working well together and you had to sort of rebalance it. I don't, I'm not sure if, that's, if, it's, if, that's, if that makes sense. But that the information that you're getting from the real world out there and that you're interpreting into your own fiction, that that became problematic, if that relationship towards your, between your story writing and the information that you were gathering sort of with, that, with your wide cast net. Right. Yeah. Huh. Well, if I understand the question right, um, it's interesting. I, um, I think I think about things really differently. Like, I mean, the, the book um, is quite personal on a lot of levels, but my own personal experiences that are sort of in it or filtered through it, you know, metabolized through it, are not so much from volunteering in the prison at all. Um, there's like a lot of stuff in the book that's the background of the narrator who's from San Francisco. And she's very much a girl from my neighborhood and has my friends and is from a world that I know intimately. Um, so that part of it was very natural for me to write. And I don't think I would have been able to write 350 pages primarily in the voice of a narrator without having a depth of understanding and a maneuverability inside of her background. Because once she goes to prison, all she really has is um, a set of recollections. It's, I mean, the way I think of it, I've never been incarcerated, but from talking to friends inside and just thinking um, as carefully as I could into that, you're, it's like you stop generating you know, external material for your life. And what you have is this like s closed set of integers of things that you've experienced. And then you are reviewing them, you know? And so she's reviewing them for the reader. And the things that she reviews are things I understand very well. Um, in terms of like this type of stuff that I was up to that Rob and I were talking about, like, you know, um, talking to people with life sentences under the auspices of this human rights organization, I didn't take any notes when I was talking to people. I just listened to them. And I didn't use the stories that they told me in the book. Um, I didn't need to for some reason. There was just so much that I could do and invent because I had submerged myself in this world for many years. And so that's kind of what fiction is to me, is that I'm free to create a sort of parallel universe that's humming along that hopefully has a resonance and gleam of truth in it without being like analytically, experientially true to actual real lived people. And when I was with those people, I just wanted to be present for them and listen because a lot of the people that I visit in prison are not visited by anybody else and just to have somebody who will treat them with dignity and gentleness, you know, and listen to them is something that I'm giving, or I feel like that's what I'm doing. So I wasn't really like writing those experiences down. Um, but maybe you're asking on a more practical level. Like I had a, a woman who is a close friend and was an advisor to me on the book who was incarcerated for 23 years and is a free person. And um, she, I paid her to just sit down with me and like explain stuff. And she has an incredible uh, expertise in prison knowledge because she spent most of her life in institutions. And so, you know, I would say like, explain this to me, like how does this work? And with her, I would take extensive notes and it was her job to tell me everything. 
And um, that was really cool and fun. And I have notebooks filled with things she told me. And most of it didn't go in the book because, you know, it's m more than one needs. But if there were ever like a disjuncture between what I was learning and what I was writing, I probably would change what I was writing or what I was learning. You know what I mean? Like writing a novel for me is um, somehow like a filter on life. Like there's always gonna be flow and conversation between the two. And that's like why I'm doing both. Like living is only interesting to me so far as it kind of filters <laughs> into writing or doesn't, with the exception of my child who is intrinsically, objectively interesting. But um, otherwise, that's like what I'm looking for is that conversation between the two. So it's not like I would think, oh, there's something not working in my book because it's not matching what I'm learning out here. Do you know what I mean? Thanks for your question. Thank you. Um, I had to write this question down because I wanted to make sure it sounded okay. Oh, wow. But, um, yeah, I know, right? I wish um, I could write my answers down. They'd <laughs> be completely different than everything I just said over the last hour. Nabokov did it like that. Didn't he? he had those cards he used to read. Oh, it would help, right? Um, I was really interested in the uh, link between the Mars Room, again, that passage that you read about like Mormo's prostitution and um, the incarceration of, of female um, prisoners. My question revolves around the, the quotes that has fascinated me for a long time. Uh, the opposite of good is not evil, but good intentions. Is moral questioning that revolves around prostitution and sensing to incarceration a significant connection to understanding or sympathizing with human choices spurred by internal convictions? Wait, wow. That I'm start again? That's, I'll sum it up a little bit again. Just to, again, I'm looking at the, like, the passage. I haven't read the book myself. But the you were t the passage was in was set in a brothel or somewhere. It's, that was no, it's a, a, a strip club. Strip club. Okay. It's I think it's quite different than a brothel. Okay. But okay. Um, well, the idea of a strip club, and again, the idea this man is going and he's paying for these kind of, and again to the or into the reader and to myself, it seemed um, to draw a little bit of sympathy for this character who seems quite lonely and quite again yeah. despite ignorant to the world, he's paying for this thing, but he finds happiness in that. And the idea of it kind of questions the moral, the moral of the reader, I guess, to look at that. Is that right or is that wrong? You talk a little bit about your own moral compass, compass about understanding the people that you're interviewing and seeing and talking about what is right and what is wrong. Some people look to religion and whatnot. So again, that's a very loaded question. I apologize. But what is that kind of, to simplify, what is that connection between the Mars Room, that strip club, the passage you just you read, and the incarceration system of the jails and whatnot? There really is no overt connection, but you aren't the first person who's asked me that. Even um, people who've read the novel have asked that. And I think that maybe, I, I, I've especially been asked that by w female journalists. Maybe there's no, um, that, that is just a coincidence. But um, it seems like the question has been raised by people who are sort of unfamiliar with the sex industry and they think, oh, is working in a strip club you know, as confining and rule-driven and humiliating as um, spending time in a prison? And the answer for me is unequivocally no. Like, not at all. Because uh, I don't see it as any more depraved than any other job that people undertake to make money and uh, get by. And I am from San Francisco, which has um, a very booming sex industry 
and a lot of girls that I grew up with worked in it, and it's kind of um, can seem like a solution for a clever woman who doesn't want to have to deal with what I think of as the straight world and get a job and have like a manager breathing down her neck, et cetera, because there are very few rules when you work in that environment. And it's kind of designed for people who have an attitude problem, you know, and like want to show to work drunk and you get paid in cash and there's a lot of freedom to it and a sort of letting go, even in the structure itself, because it's not within the sort of moral umbrella of, you know, approved professions, or at least that used to be the case. Now I think it's pretty normal. Um, and prison is a totally different thing, but in, in terms of like morality and where I stand, I'm, I'm somehow disinterested in ever defining like what's good and what's bad. They're just gradations for me. And um, that's, I think, how people are too. Like that guy, Kurt, I have a lot of sympathy for him because he's like a complicated guy who thinks he's just getting what he desperately needs, you know? Does that answer it? Yeah, oh, no, okay. I think it does, yeah, thank you. Sure. Do we, one more over here? I wonder, is this probably the last question? Yeah, yeah. I was interested that you said it takes about five years to write a novel, and I suppose one thing that just came to mind is that within those five years, there was like a very popular representation of women's prison through kind of Orange is the New Black. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts about, you know, when you started the process of writing the book versus now, there's probably a, a kind of a, a broader accepted cultural perception of what women's prison is like and what that was like for you uh, as the book was coming out and just any thoughts you might have had on that. Yeah, I... Um I don't have many thoughts about it because I don't know the show. Like, um, I uh, obviously heard about it when it came out, it was a big deal. I don't really watch that much TV, um, but I did watch the first episode of the first season, but then quickly realized, like, I don't wanna watch the show because I'm already writing this novel about prison and what if I accidentally, like, steal something from mm -hmm. it and put it in my book, that'd be so stupid, right? Um, but, um, but I'm not really interested in the serial format. Like, I think the, like, the way TV is formatted because it's by episode creates this pressure for there to be, like, narrative action and quasi-resolution, like, every single time it comes on. So that's why I'm not that interested in the form. Um, I know that's not really what you're asking about, but that pertains to my answer. But, um, yeah, I mean, that... From what I remember from watching the first episode, um, it's like about an upper class woman who ends up going to a minimum security federal prison in Connecticut. And um, that's like a very different environment entirely. Um, I think it's great that they had a cast that actually reflects like the diversity of America and also some sense of, um, with the exception of the protagonist, the social class of most of the people who go to prison, you know, that's cool. And um, I feel like the women I know uh, who have been incarcerated, who have seen the show, 
are really into it. Unlike the like young activists I know who are really sensitive about that show and get all uptight when they think that there's like microaggressions on it or that it's not realistic. And I've seen arguments between activists and formerly incarcerated people who are yelling at the activists like, it's TV, it's supposed to be entertaining <laughs> and it's about us, so sit down and shut <laughs> up. Uh, which was really funny. But um, I don't know, what people have asked me about it uh, several times since my book came out, and it concerns me a tiny bit only because it's like we have so few cultural representations in different art forms of women in prison that it seems as if the mothership is like some TV show, which shouldn't be the case at all. Um, and certainly it wouldn't be the case if the topic were like cops, you know, mm -hmm. or like dirty cops or slavery. You wouldn't be like, so how do you feel about roots, Colson Whitehead? You know what I mean? Like, um, I, I think we're hopefully moving into an expanded field. But, you know, I think like TV and novels are, for me, they're like on very different tracks and I don't seek that kind of popularity. So I don't feel like there's any real conversation between the two. Yeah, this is me jumping in ahead of the audience, but there is talk I've just remembered of the flamethrowers being turned into a film just while we're talking about the different disciplines and genres. Is that something that's gonna happen? It would make a very good film. Um, I don't know, and I'm not really at liberty to okay. say. Yeah, 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 no comment. <laughs> but um, it was supposed to happen, yeah, and yeah. Jane Campion was supposed to direct it. Right. But um, I, that Let's is, see I don't know the out. status of that project. Fair enough, fair enough. Well, we better finish there, so I hope you all found that as fascinating as I did. Please thank uh, Thank Rachel you. Kirsten. Thank you, Rob. <laughs>